I'm trying not to do the stuff that I love. I'm trying to do the stuff that I don't necessarily love, um, that I should be working more on. Um, so I have to be kind of like honest with myself around that. Like everybody wants to hit a really sick power clean, right? <laughs> Nobody yeah. necessarily wants to work on their strict pull-ups or, or practice their double-unders. So yep. that's a lot of the stuff I do at home now. Please listen carefully. Let's um, talk about maybe where you grew up and um, kind of everything leading up to, let's say, fitness, CrossFit. Um, obviously, we'll talk about the Phoenix, um, but give, maybe give people a little bit of background. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so I grew up not too far from your facility. Uh, I grew up in Glenside, and uh, we actually, uh, I attended um, Villanova. We overlapped at the same time, yep. uh, which we were talking earlier about having a lot of mutual contacts over the years, and this is the first time we're getting a chance to meet face to face. So that's um, that's it, it's a it's a great opportunity to finally sit down and talk to you. Uh, in terms of fitness background, I um, was never really very athletic hmm. or into sports at all growing up. I was uh, I was very short for most of. Uh, my young age and then uh, I kind of hit my growth spurt right around my teen years and uh, was very awkward, very uncoordinated, like didn't have really great body control. So um, sports were not a huge, like I played youth sports when I was a kid, but it was never something that I did in high school, never something that I did in college. Uh, I never went to the gym. Um, so what, I, kind, what kind of kid were you? were you? Were you more of a bookworm? Were you... Um like how would you describe yourself in, let's say high school and going into college? Uh, so high school, high school was kind of funny. I, I, I think of myself um, more kind of like a recluse a little bit. Uh, I, I was someone who um, was a reader, but I also, uh, in high school I started experimenting with um, alcohol and pot and uh, I kind of, leaned more into that mm. as my teenage years went on mm -hmm. uh, and that kind of became um, what my major interests were. Yeah. I, I didn't really, I, I, I spent most of my weekends doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, this was with others? Uh, with with others. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I kind of found other people that were, uh, I guess you could say a little bit lost or um, not really, didn't have a, a key direction or a key goal of what they were trying to accomplish in life. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's a certain amount of feeling of uh, awkwardness that drove that on my side. Uh, but I didn't really have anything that I identified with in high school. So I figured that helped kind of, that, that was something that um, I identified with. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I got to college and uh, I, I had gone through a period where um, I was just drinking. I wasn't uh, doing drugs at all. And then uh, as I, my years went on in college, my drinking kind of ramped up and uh, my run-ins with the law also ramped up. And while I was at Villanova, uh, I, I guess maybe it was like the second or third time I had gotten picked up by the cops. They had uh, remanded me to go see a drug and alcohol counselor, I guess when I was about 20 years old. And uh, 
I talked to the counselor. I told them, you know, how often I drank, how much I drank, uh, why I drank, and they uh, made me continue on with the alcohol counseling for the rest of the semester. Uh, and I think the entire time the counselor was always trying to plant this seed of, you know, maybe this is uh, kind of problematic behavior for me. But uh, I was 20 years old. I was at college. Uh, I you know, always kind of operated from the mindset that like everybody at college drinks mm -hmm. and I drink the same as everybody else. Okay. So this is not a problem and I'm too young to be listening to the stories about this being an issue. So, uh, Were your parents aware of everything going on? My parents knew that I was getting arrested um, and I think uh, they, they knew that that was a problem but I think they also knew that, or they, they believed that at some point in my life I was just gonna end up growing out of it. Like I think, mm -hmm. 20-year-old kid gets drunk a lot and uh, gets picked up by the cops, you know, at some point, like, this will end. Okay, so they kind of have the same mindset as you of, like, this is a phase and we're going to, at some point, grow out of it. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Um, and then uh, college kept going and things didn't really necessarily improve. And then I started to notice um, some, uh, some kind of disturbing health results of this habit. We were talking about habits uh, earlier, and uh, I developed a tremor in my hands, um, my hands and, uh, and a tremor in my knees. Uh, so my hands would shake uncontrollably, and my knees would shake uncontrollably. And I noticed that the only time that that tremor would stop is if I drank. So I guess this was around the time I was 21, 22, and I, I stopped necessarily thinking of drinking as a uh, something I do for fun and I started thinking it more in terms of like something I needed to mellow me out yeah. and that's how my relationship with drinking changed um, and at this point I was an everyday drinker but like at the same time I thought you know I'm in college uh, I thought everybody drank every day and you correct me if I'm wrong but you were in a frat as well I was yeah, yeah. Um, which you know I, I feel like it is very cliche and I, I would say that um, I, w I would not uh, I don't think being involved in the Greek society either like furthered my drinking. I think I could have done a pretty good job of furthering it on my own, but it was a really great place to hide yeah. um, yep. and uh, a great way to normalize it in my own mind. Yep. For sure. um, drug use is a part of my story, but uh, I'd say the, the main, the, I mean, the thing that I loved is drinking. Like I, I love the feeling that it took away um, whenever I did drink, and I hated the feeling in between drinks um, because I was nervous, I, I, uh, uh, I was paranoid, I shook, uh, I couldn't sleep at night and I couldn't stay up during the day. I'd fall asleep in classes a lot. Um, and eventually uh, I graduated and I tried to enter the real world, but it seemed like after graduation, everybody kind of went off in all these different paths, right? Like, you know, people pursued postgraduate degrees, they moved across the country, they got really interesting jobs, and I, uh, I moved into my mom's basement and just kind of like drank away all the money that I had in the span of a summer. And then at the end of it, I, I had to find a job, so I just kind of got this like mindless desk job. Mind you, I'm still like drinking every day. Uh, and I lost that first job, and I, I remember the, uh, a friend of mine at work, had, his manager had mentioned to him, you know, it smells like Gavin drinks his breakfast every day when he comes in. 
Um, I'd also like, I would nod off at my desk a lot. It was one of these like large open concept uh, workspaces so everybody can see everybody else and I'm like falling asleep at my desk. So, uh, and, and I knew people could see that so I tried to spread a rumor that I had narcolepsy. <laughs> so I thought like maybe that would keep them from uh, letting me go but uh, it didn't and uh, yeah, they, they let go of me anyway. So it was kind of like at that point that I realized, all right, my drinking's problematic and I gotta do something about it. So I figured, all right, um, I'm gonna try and limit it down to just weekends. Okay. And I'm gonna try and like, what we call white knuckling it to get through the week. Uh, and that was, I was guess I was uh, 23 at that time, 24 at that time. And the, the thing is, is that I always tell people, um, like towards the end, the frequency of my drinking had gone down like it, it was less days during the week, but the behavior that would happen during these uh, episodes became more and more bizarre. Like sometimes I would, I would sit at a bar and I'd have 20 beers and I wouldn't feel anything. I'd feel nothing. And then like the next day I could have one and then all of a sudden I couldn't stand up. Uh, I had trouble keeping down food. Uh, I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of uh, digestive issues. Um, as a result of my drinking, uh, I was also very malnourished. Um, I'm about 195 pounds now, which I consider to be like a healthy weight for me, 195, 200 pounds. Uh, towards the end of my drinking, I was about 160 pounds. So, um, yeah, I was just kind of like... Because you're, you're like 6'2". Six, 6'2". Six two. Six two. Yeah. Uh, so I, I kind of looked very, very thin, very frail, and very weak. Um, uh, drunk driving was a big part of my story. Blackouts were a big part of my story. Um, and the weird thing is that when I was drunk, I felt all right. Like when I was drunk, I felt like I was in control. I felt like that was kind of like a uh, safe, uh, safe space or a safe position for me to be in. It was the periods in between where I was like waiting for the opportunity to drink. That was the, the most miserable part. And um, at the time, drinking was your normal. That was your yeah. safe space. Yeah, I wasn't drinking to get drunk anymore. I was drinking to feel normal. Right. Um, and I had no other options outside of that in order to, to feel right or to feel good. Um, Let me back up just a second. Cause yeah, yeah, yeah. At Villanova, you, you were an econ ma major? Econ, yeah. Yeah, so economics, in my mind, is not an easy major. Uh, so I feel like a lot of people who may have been in this situation behavior-wise would have just flunked out or, you know, like it would have shown itself in grades and professors might have noticed. And so, like, how did you cope with that? Or how did you basically get by in a pretty tough major uh, while all this was going on? I think <laughs> I, I, I come from a family background that says, like, no matter what you do the night before, you still show up to work. <laughs> um, so I didn't miss many classes, uh, but at the same time, it's uh, like econ is a pretty wide discipline, right? Like you could go like the econometrics route, which is like highly analytical and very mathematical. You could go kind of like the social science route on the policy side, uh, decision science. So I did well in classes that were interesting to me. Uh, I did poorly in classes that weren't interesting to me. And I did get a, I did get my econ degree from Villanova, but uh, my GPA wasn't exactly something that anybody hiring for a job would be too psyched about. And uh, my senior thesis was um, 
pretty incoherent. So uh, I did learn a lot while I was in college, but um, there was also a lot of lost opportunity too. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. So out of college, get a job, but it, it doesn't work out because this is manifesting itself with when you're at work, falling asleep and everything. So at some point you realize you need to be doing something. Yeah. Uh, uh, so what did you do? Well, I was on my second job and uh, my second job started to notice that my performance was pretty poor because of my drinking as well too. So uh, they put me on kind of this probationary period and I knew that I needed some kind of help. So uh, <laughs> it was right around Lent. So anybody that's kind of like familiar with Catholic practices, uh, they know um, Lent is a period of time where Catholics traditionally will give up something in their life for 40 days. And I was like, all right, perfect opportunity. I'm going to give up drinking for 40 days. Anybody can do that. And I made it two days. Uh, I, I was walking through, I was living in Fairmount at the time. Uh, I was walking through my neighborhood. I was walking past a bar in my neighborhood that had really good cheeseburgers. And I was like, you know, I'll just get a cheeseburger for dinner, then I'll go home. And uh, I walked into that bar and I came out of a blackout two days later. And I was, uh, I was, I was just completely distraught because it was the first time in my life that I said, like, I'm physically not gonna do something. And I had uh, zero control, absolutely zero control. And um, the first thing that I thought of as soon as I came out of that blackout is, oh my God, well, I gotta start drinking now to get this bad feeling away. So the thing that I said I wasn't gonna do caused this problem and it's also the only solution I have to stop feeling this way. Um, the day after that, I woke up and I said, you know, I, I need to find some kind of help. And uh, I have various members of my family that were involved in, that have their own recovery journey. And, uh, you know, it had kind of been suggested to me a few times, like maybe this is something I need to go seek some help on. So uh, I found uh, kind of the 12-step community. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I got involved going to 12-step meetings, and that was in 2008. And uh, were you, what were you feeling when you found this? So, what did you did you do? Like Google or Google, and yeah. then just found like the closest one. Yeah. And then, were you uh, were you excited for it? Were you apprehensive? Were you like t having to talk yourself into actually going? Um, I went with kind of this like information gathering mindset where like I'll go and hear them out, mm. but I'm in no way resigning myself to continuing to go here and I don't want to admit that I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, so I was like, it. you know what, I'm 25 years old, I'm too young for this. Yep. Uh, in my mind I had an idea of like what an alcoholic looked like. Yep. Um, so I went to my first one and I told everybody they, they asked me if I wanted to talk about what brought me in, and I, I kind of described it as this uh, life had kind of become this wheel. Um, you know, I, I feel good. I'm kind of at the top of the wheel. I drink. I kind of get crushed by it. I have to pull myself out from underneath of this wheel. I feel good. I drink, and then I'm back underneath of it. And that's kind of like what life was like from age 20 to age 25. Uh, I didn't want to stay, and uh, I didn't want to quit, but I was afraid to, to go back to drinking. And 
I put together a little bit of time and then um, I got more and more involved and I think maybe it was around like 40 days, something like that, I had finally, uh, it was the most time I'd ever spent not drinking in my life. And uh, I physically felt better. And I, I listened to some other people talk and share their story. And um, it was the first time in my life that anybody else had vocalized how I felt through their own experience. Um, I could identify not necessarily with the physical aspects of everybody's life, but I identified with what they were feeling. And um, I think just being part of a community, it, uh, it became kind of like a safe place for me. And, uh, you know, that was, that was 2008. Um, with 2021 now, I just celebrated 13 years on, on Wednesday. Awesome. Yeah. Throughout all this, you, were you still at that job? I was, I was still at that job, Even yeah. Even though they put you on a performance plan and Yes, everything? yeah. It was, uh, it was, um, I was working in the securities trading industry uh, for a small tier options trading firm, and uh, I was just grateful to have the job. Um, mm -hmm. I basically, I got the job as a runner on the exchange floor, just a guy that could tear tickets, answer phones, and get coffee. And then, uh, you know, lo and behold, I, I quit drinking. I got better at my job, and uh, I started noticing that the whole industry was going more to the tech side of things. So I was like, all right, well, I better get handy with the software a little bit. And uh, I kind of taught myself trading software, and... Um, I got promoted when I was about two years sober, which was kind of mind-blowing. But uh, yeah, I, uh, I kind of climbed the, the finance ladder a little bit. And, and um, I guess it was around 2000, 2010 when, um, yeah, I was, I was two years clean at that point. And uh, there was a, a huge economic downturn in the markets. There was a lot of people that were losing their job. It was a really tough time for everybody. And I kind of thought, all right, well, I'm someone with this like poor background. Uh, you know, I'm in an industry that's kind of contracting right now. I was fully expecting to be let go. Um, I, you know, I told my mom, I was like, hey, I might have to move home for a little bit. I'm, I think I might get laid off. And I actually ended up getting promoted and, and relocated. So, uh, I was kind of experiencing the immediate benefits of getting sober, you know, yep. um, being worthwhile on a job. And, and uh, I moved out to Chicago in 2010. And uh, Chicago was actually where I started to get involved in CrossFit. Uh, so when I got sober, I found a lot of other guys that were just going to the gym and they would just do like biceps and skull crushers, yep. uh, you know. Bench press, and that was about it. Never trained legs, never do cardio. But it was mostly just kind of uh, something to do with people that wasn't drinking. It was something where I was trying to improve my health a little bit. And, you know, still like 165 pounds, something like that. Like, I, I could barely lift the barbell, but um, it felt good to move my body, and it felt good to kind of whatever... I'm no expert at the brain chemistry of what happens like after exercise, especially exercise with other people, but I definitely felt the effects of exercise and its benefits. Mm -hmm. um, so Yeah, dopamine rush, positive feedback, community, right? Yeah. But in a positive sense. Exactly, yeah. Yep. Um, and 
when I was out in Chicago. And I was doing this, I got into yoga for a little while. Yoga was really, really good to help kind of like settle my mood a little bit because I could be a little bit scatterbrained very early on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I guess it was 2013, 2012 I was out in Chicago and my brother, he started telling me about this exercise class he was going to called CrossFit. And he's like, hey, you should check this out. And I was like, I don't know, man. Group fitness classes sounds terrible. <laughs> like I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> but, Leg warmers and yeah, exercise and yeah. yeah I'm yeah. like, I'm good by myself. Yeah, like yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't need anybody high fiving me or like patting me on the back. Right. Um, but I found a box out in Chicago called uh, CrossFit Lincoln Park, and yeah, okay, I've dropped in. Yeah, yep. it's a good spot. Uh, yep. If anybody's out in Chicago ever, uh, Justin Enders is the owner. It's it's a wonderful spot on the north side. Yep. Uh, and I started going and, um, God, it like, it knocked me on my ass. It, it's, uh, going from like just doing my own thing to those classes. It was very, very humbling. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. did you go in thinking that you would be, you know, pretty, pretty good, pretty solid and be able to keep <laughs> up with people? No, no, I had no expectations for myself okay. in terms of like All performance right. and yeah, I wasn't yeah. like benchmarking myself against others, but I was yeah. definitely like. <clears throat> the last to finish every workout. Yep. All the women outlifted me. Yep. Uh, I, I, um, I, I was like, I was very new, very raw, and like completely deconditioned. And I was totally okay with that. You know what I mean? I, I gladly wrote my, That's like, my, my times on the boards. I scaled everything. I used every band in the house. And that was okay because, like, I felt great at the end of it. Mm -hmm. My times were terrible. And, like, I didn't care. I was like, I'm feeling, uh, I get that dopamine rush that you're talking about. Um, I think uh, without speaking for everybody in the recovery community, but I think anybody who has some kind of like substance abuse issue, people in recovery have this feeling of like, you know, drinking drugs, things like that. They, they increase this good feeling internally. And then we're always kind of constantly chasing that good feeling. So we're always looking to have that pain taken away. We're always kind of chasing that high. Um, so a lot of people, when they do come into recovery, they seek out like, you see a lot of people in recovery get really into running. Uh, a lot of people in the, uh, the ultra space, you know, um, Ironman, things like that, uh, swimming, like exercise is kind of like a healthy thing that a lot of people in the recovery community do. Um, so that good feeling that we get at the end of a class or the end of a good lifting session or the end of a run, we chase that. Sometimes a little overboard, but like uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good option for people that are, uh, coming into recovery, whether they're new or whether they've got a lot of time. Yep. Like I found it when I was four years sober. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I wish I'd gotten into it sooner. I wish I'd gotten into it when I was in high school. Um, yep. You know, it would have been kind of a nice option compared to what I was doing back then. Yep. But do you, and I, I think I asked a similar question to Ryan, mutual friend Ryan, who uh, has been on a previous podcast, but do you feel like if you had a conversation with yourself back in high school, Right, like if you were able to basically take you now uh, and talk to yourself when you were younger, I mean, do you feel like you could have changed anything or talked any sense into your younger self? You know what, God's honest truth, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think that maybe in some way, if I, if I could go back and uh, either instill some kind of uh, concept of what life looks like now or any kind of advice, maybe I'd be receptive to it, but who knows? 
Like, I mean, you could have been like, who's this old guy talking to me about yeah. my future? Like, <laughs> I, I, got, I got control over this, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah, I just yeah. feel like as a, as a teenager, a lot of us would just write it off, Yeah, you know? Uh, Plus, I don't know when it happens, but I feel like when you're young, you know everything, and the older you get, you realize you know nothing. Yeah, exactly. uh, or I know very little about some things. Yep. Uh, so yep. when I'm 16, 17, I've pretty much had everything figured out. Yep, and no exactly. one, exactly. even uh, future Gavin would be able to talk me out of it. Yep. Yeah. When you were at uh, Lincoln Park, uh, were, were there any discussions with other members about your history? Did you come across other members who also had a similar rehab recovery uh, journey and they were also working out next to you? Um, or did that just not even come up? So I was very kind of like, I just came for the workouts. I didn't stay for the community. Gotcha. Um, and uh, at that point in my recovery, I was very kind of shut in about what I was doing. Like, I didn't tell people I was sober. I didn't promote it. I didn't want people to know about it. Um, so I didn't, I didn't interact with people a whole lot outside of the box. I pretty much just came for the program and that was it. Gotcha. Um, it was around this time, and this kind of dovetails into a topic I'm sure we're going to talk about, but uh, I got uh, an article sent to me about um, a nonprofit called uh, what was then Phoenix Multisport uh, that was based out of Colorado and uh, the founder of this nonprofit, this guy Scott Strode, who uh, created this sober gym community out in the uh, Denver Boulder area. And uh -huh. it was essentially a, a gym for people in recovery. Anybody that was 48 hours clean could come and participate and they did group fitness classes, boxing, hiking, mountain biking, stuff like that. And uh, I listened to his TED talk. Uh, mm -hmm. He was one of the CNN heroes that year. Yep. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Yeah, because CrossFit HQ did a, did a whole video about that, about him. Yeah, yeah, at that point, I don't think, they weren't involved with CrossFit yet, but they did establish a relationship okay. a few years later. But gotcha, uh, gotcha. Um, I was like, yeah, this is great. I'm in Chicago, they're in Colorado, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> uh, so I kind of just like put that idea yeah, on the shelf yeah. and said like, that's great, they're doing that, but you know, mm -hmm. it's. I don't really know like how I could get involved. And then uh, 2014, I came back to Philadelphia. Uh, I started going to CrossFit Fairmount in Fairmount, mm -hmm. which if anybody's down there, uh, the owner, Paul Donovan, he goes by Goose, great guy. Um, real stickler for wall ball depth. So if you're someone that kind of push presses <laughs> your wall balls, he will find you. Um, I started going to his classes and, uh, and opportunity to get my L1 came up and I'd never really thought of myself as someone who could coach other individuals but I'd been going to CrossFit for a little while I started to get a little bit more competent in what I was doing so I went and got my L1 on a whim and then I didn't really know why I did it uh, but he had mentioned to me he's like well you have your L1 I'm looking for at this point he had been open for maybe under a year he's like I'm looking for someone else to come help coach why don't you shadow me I'll teach you what I know, and then you know maybe a couple months down the line we could get you coaching classes regularly. And it was great; I loved it. Yeah. Um, I think getting involved in people's health journey, because everybody comes in and they have something that they're bringing with them. Some people have like a past in sports that they're trying to get back to. Some people have some kind of injury that they're trying to rehab from. Uh, I remember one day. Uh, 
I guess I had been coaching for maybe like five or six months. I was helping somebody spot on a back squat and they had really, um, there'd been like a, a huge jump in their performance and how much they were able to squat in the time I'd seen them. And I was saying like, you know, I would just start a conversation like, you know, how'd you end up coming here? Why'd you end up getting involved in exercise? And that individual, I remember he looked me in the face and he's like, well, I'm, I'm in uh, recovery from thyroid cancer. And I was thinking, wow, his doctor had recommended that he get active uh, in terms of kind of like stimulating his health, but you don't really know as a coach how much your impact is sometimes and, and, and to what degree that is and how much that ends up helping other people. So then it started to make me think of, I was still involved in the 12-step community uh, throughout all this. I guess I was maybe six or seven years sober at this point and I was starting to think like, you know, I got a really huge boost out of exercise. I got a really huge boost out of coaching. Are there other people that are kind of like me that would be interested in doing this too? So I started getting people I know from 12-step meetings and, and trying to get them to drop in, try a couple classes. Some stuck, some didn't. And uh, it was right around the same time that that nonprofit that I mentioned to you, the Phoenix, uh, they had started a chapter in Philadelphia that was run out of Fearless Athletics uh, in South Philadelphia. Um, and uh, the owner of Fearless, Will Vicenis, and uh, another friend of mine, Melody Schofield, they uh, were standing the program up and I was interested. Uh, I wanted to check out what was going on and I just asked if I could come around and help out in any way possible. Uh, so it was the first time I was really ever taking something that I'd learned in terms of like my L1, my experience, and started to apply it specifically to a group of individuals that um, were going through the same thing that I had gone through seven years prior. And I started coaching for the Phoenix, and it was, um, I was hooked. I was hooked. What was, the, uh, what was the structure? So Fearless Athletics, somehow collaborates or you know, becomes a location for the Phoenix. So was that a, uh, a set day and time for classes where you know, everybody in that class were sober or was it a, a mix of like general population and, and folks in the program? You know, what, did it, what did it look like logistically? So uh, Fearless would offer a dedicated time. Uh, it started off uh, Saturday's afternoon. I think, I think it was Saturday afternoons at three when we first started, which is like a time that the gym is usually, most affiliates are usually closed Saturday afternoons. Yeah. Like they usually run like a Saturday morning program. So uh, it was specific for people that were what we call team members, Phoenix team members. Uh, to be a Phoenix team member, you know, you just have to, you have to adhere to um, what we call our community standards, which uh, the big one is the 48 hour sober. That's, that's what we kind of uh, ask of people when they come in through the door, but there's also, uh, other community standards that we talk about, like uh, only uh, supportive language, uh, try to ask people not to curse. Um, we we want to kind of create a, a safe and supportive environment for individuals uh, that are attending these programs. It functions from a program perspective, like your standard CrossFit class, but um, we also leave time at the beginning to one, read the community standards and then also people can share uh, what they're going through in terms of the recovery journey. Uh, the, 
the Phoenix as an organization, I think I'm going to, I might butcher a couple of these stats, but uh, I'm going to give it a go. I think at this point, it was founded in 2006. And at this point, I think we've served about 42,000 people. And we have uh, a presence in 23 states and 44 communities within those 23 states. And I only say that just to answer your question about like how it functions with each uh, location. It really kind of varies from location to location. So uh, we have uh, a couple buildings that we own. Uh, our, our two kind of like what I'd consider like flagship buildings are located in Denver and uh, in Boston. Mm -hmm. And those we can run programs, you know, seven days a week uh, yeah. and, you know, whenever we want to. Uh, and it's not just CrossFit. It's, it's not just CrossFit. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. do rock climbing. We do yoga. We do meditation. Uh, we've expanded into a lot of other things now. Um, dance classes, book mm -hmm. clubs. Mm -hmm. uh, we're currently launching a music program this year. Cool. So I think when we first started out, people looked at it as like, oh, it's a sober gym. But mm -hmm. we started to realize, you know, if somebody PRs their back squat or they get their first ring muscle up or something like that, that's great. But what we're really <clears> selling <throat> is a connection to a community. Mm -hmm. And if that's what, and I shouldn't say selling because the programs are free for anybody to attend. Uh, but our bread and butter has always been that connection to the community. And whether that takes shape in terms of attending a yoga class, a guided meditation, if you want to do Fran, like whatever, like it, we just wanted to kind of create the environment and then whatever shape or modality that takes, we're, we're willing to lean into. So, yeah. um, the majority of our, our CrossFit offering, though, is partnering with local affiliates. Uh, you know, if they have an open time slot or if they have space where they can kind of run concentric classes, uh, we'll take them up on the offer to run our programming out of their facility. Uh, if they have people with their L1 that have an eye towards community service, we'll light them up as what we consider like a, a volunteer coach, and then they could run our programs. Uh, but yeah, any, any gym owner across the country that kind of aligns with our mission, if they have interest in standing up our programs, we can talk to them about doing so. Uh, initially, when we first started up, um, kind of volunteer activation was very in-person driven. We'd have someone either fly or drive out to that location to help kind of get things started a little bit. And now, um, through everything that's gone on in 2020, we realized that uh, Virtually, if we're able to do this um, from across the country, it kind of helps expedite the process a little bit. And uh, I did, uh, I mean, I did mention earlier how our bread and butter has always been kind of our in-person programming, but um, one of the things we realized as an organization, I guess about a year and a half ago, is that you know there's a lot of communities where we don't have a physical presence yet. How do we reach those individuals? So we came up with this idea of what if we started running virtual classes? And uh, we came into 2020 with the eye of, all right, this year we'll pilot this idea of a virtual class and see what happens. And then COVID happened and everything got shut down. And within the span of a week, we were able to stand up our virtual offering from our website. And you were already thinking about it and then it just kind of happened. The yeah. Yeah, I realize it's a very tough year for, for everybody. Um, so it was kind of serendipitous for us that it happened when it did. 
because I think the initial plan was to kind of slow roll the offering. And then when it became kind of our only offering, it's like, all right, well, let's lean very hard into this. And then now I think we offer, I want to say 140 virtual classes a week. No, wait, maybe 120, but it's about eight to nine classes every single day. Um, and it goes from, you know, your community fitness classes, uh, interval training, uh, guided meditation, yoga, socials, whatever. But mm -hmm. every single day from sun up to sundown, people can go on our website and access our virtual classes. Can you back up and sure. talk about Scott Strode and how the Phoenix even came to existence? Sure. Yeah, Scott's a person who's in long-term recovery himself. I think at this point, he's somewhere north of like 20 years in recovery. I think his recovery journey uh, came through Boston. Uh, I think that's where a lot of his, his backstory and, and his history uh, lies in that city. And then he got sober, and I, I can never remember this, if he got sober in Colorado or if he got sober in Boston, but he found himself in Colorado and he got involved in ice climbing and boxing and uh, I think it was during one specific ice climbing event he can tell the story obviously way better than I can when he reached the summit and he felt a certain amount of connection and empowerment with it something that he'd never felt before in all of his history and it was at that point he said you know this could really be a solution for individuals um, who are, are trying to find recovery and that's where the idea for the Phoenix came from. Gotcha. And that was 2006, I believe, he started the process of founding this with a, a couple other individuals. And uh, it's just kind of grown from there. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so it's free for, um, you call them team members? Team members, yeah. Team members. Um, so how is it funded? Uh, because obviously it takes money to you know, have buildings and, you know, uh, and, and run these things. Sure. Uh, so. Um, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, we're reliant on funding specifically from donors, uh, grants, uh, people that want to volunteer their space. Uh, but at this point, since we've kind of uh, grown, uh, we're still trying to let people know who we are and what we do. Uh, nowadays, a lot of um, what we do and where we end up setting up new locations is dependent on individuals who come to us and say like, hey, you know, I love your mission. Uh, I want to help support it in any way. By the way, I'm from this area of the country. What can we do to help uh, what's going on there? Because it's been very well documented, but uh, the opioid academic, eh, epidemic uh, has kind of exploded uh, yeah. last year. Uh, and I think as people have become shut in, uh, substance abuse has been on the rise, so it's touched every community, um, you know, whether we're talking about cities, suburbs, uh, rural areas. Um, people come to us and say, you know, what can I do to help out where I'm from, this state, uh, this city, this community, and that kind of drives, like, what we're able to do in that area. But yes, gotcha. we are funded uh, primarily from philanthropic donors. Gotcha. Um, when someone let's say um a gym wants to start running this um how does the word get out to people that this exists that um this is what we're doing i mean obviously the the marketing can come from the gym itself but i imagine you probably have connections with local 12-step programs that you might get in touch with and say hey here's what we have to offer 
come on by if, if you're interested? Sure. So uh, there's a couple pieces to it. One, you know, if somebody agrees to run our programs, uh, we get them on a schedule, we put it on our website, and our website has kind of a location finder where you put your zip code in, and then depending on the day, it says like, okay, this is all the in-person programming that's within your area gotcha. uh, and what that programming is. And then uh, we also have a social, well, we have uh, a social media account for our national org, but also various chapters across the country also have local social media. So they'll post like, hey, this is what our classes, our class schedule looks like for Philadelphia. Um, so people who follow us on social media can see what the schedule is for the classes in their area. Uh, they can also access the virtual classes that are on the website and also see um, what in-person classes around them are available. But in terms of getting the word out as well too, uh, you know, we'll talk to local treatment centers, uh, local sober living situations, anybody else in the recovery community to try and let them know, hey, people that are in your care, here's an offering for them. And uh, I, I want to be very specific with uh, this portion of our mission is that we're open to all pathways to recovery. And I think a lot of people in the recovery community know that there's a lot of different options these days for individuals that are trying to get sober, whether it's 12 steps, uh, medical assisted treatment, um, smart recovery. There's a, an innumerable uh, offerings out there. And um, we're open to any pathway that works for anybody. Uh, we don't want to uh, promote like one specific route. Right. Um, right. Anybody, whatever they're using to stay sober, we want them to do that. We want to consider ourselves a resource. We're not trying to supplant anything. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You, you're offering it as a way to say, hey, look, we've seen these benefits of physical activity um, uh, kind of replace the, the vices that we may have had in the past, you know, in a positive way in a positive sense. So if this is something that can, um, I imagine, I, you know, cause I imagine doing something like this is not the only resource that they're using, right? Like they probably have a combination of hopefully a team of, or a, uh, you know, a, a, a series of things that they're doing between 12 steps, Phoenix, you know, wh whatever the case may be in terms of support. Yeah. I think, uh, Anybody that has someone that they're close to that's in the recovery community, if they ask them how they stay sober, they're never going to get one straight answer. I think these days there are so many options out there for people. Um, some people do it through 12-step. Some people do it through uh, outpatient rehab. Some people do it through, uh, they're very involved in their church. Uh, exercise is a big thing. Uh, Sometimes creative outlets are a big thing. Um, it's never, I mean, maybe it's one thing that, helps keep somebody sober, but oftentimes it's kind of a, a mixture of a lot of different things that end up helping out. And we want to be uh, one of those offerings to people. Yep. So we totally skipped over a step, but when you were helping out at Fearless, at some point you made the transition to working for the Phoenix full yes. time. Yeah. So talk about that. Uh, so uh, the Philly chapter, I think, has been around for about four years. and. When I first started volunteer coaching there, it really was just volunteer. You know, I, I only cared about just people coming in, people attending our classes, uh, and I was more than willing to donate my time to do so. But we always talked about, Scott and I always talked about, you know, what, what would it look like if I ever came to work for him full time? And uh, it's kind of a dialogue that we've had over the past few years. And then uh, I was still working in the securities industry. I 
kind of was successful in that, but um, it, I didn't love it. And I knew I didn't love it for a very long time. Even like good days, bad days in my, my past career, I, I knew in the back of my mind it wasn't something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And if that was the case, then I needed to try and find what that was. And then uh, Scott and the leadership team at the Phoenix approached me last year for an opportunity to run um, their partnerships uh, from a national level and help out uh, from that perspective. And the opportunity came my way. I talked it over with my wife. It was, um, you know, at that point, we had just moved out to the suburbs. We, we had a daughter, uh, you know, it's, it was, not the, it was not the best time to make a, a leap of faith, you know, but at the same time, when is, right? Like, it's never a perfect time. No. It's never a perfect time. Yeah, uh, and I kind of said to myself, like, if I don't do this, I'm always gonna wonder. Mm -hmm. And I, I said yes, and I came on board to work for them full time last August. Nice. So. I, I mean, I don't know if this went through your mind, but like, to me, hearing that, it's like, the worst case is that you try it, you, it doesn't meet your expectations or it doesn't meet your needs. And you go back into either securities because you have a history of that and then figure something out. Or I, I feel like there's, there is a, a risk in trying something new, but for a lot of people, the risk of not even trying it is worse. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I do think there's some people that there's a lot of people that are afraid of, of taking that leap or, or trying something completely different. So it does keep them from that. But um, it sounds like you're a lot like me in the sense of you would rather try it and and then just figure it out or, you know, pivot when needed than live with the regret of not even knowing what would have happened. Yeah. And I think that's kind of that's the mindset I think people should take with a lot of things that they try in their life is that if it seems like a risk, uh, and a, a calculated risk at best, um, mm -hmm. you want to know. You want to know. And it's not like making that decision is going to set you off on this like horrible path for the rest of your life. Right. Uh, I knew going into this, you know, I could, I could take this role and then if it doesn't work, that's okay. Like I can go back to my previous industry. Like that's, that's something that's still going to be an option later on down the road. Yep. But if I don't say yes now, this opportunity might not come up again. So. I would rather try it and then know, rather than always kind of wonder. Yep. And that's something that I feel like, uh, you know, I've, I've followed along with your own story with how you ended up starting your business. And it sounds like you had that foresight very early on. I feel like a lot of people in their 20s probably um, don't have, and I, I wish they did because you can kind of make those risks very early um, before life gets complicated. But at the same time, I want to, pointed out that you know at no point in your life are you too old or uh, mm -hmm. too entrenched in what you're doing yep. to make a change or take a risk uh, and I think yep. people should always kind of keep that in the back of their mind if they're asking themselves those questions yeah Gary V Gary Vaynerchuk talks about that a lot I don't agree with everything he says but his message of look even if you're let's say 50 years old you still have 30 plus around 30 years of your life left like that's a long freaking time right and it's like it's really never too late to to try something. It doesn't have to be necessarily all in if if that's not what your calculated risk says, right? But it can be, you know, a, a side hustle, a hobby, uh, at least try a little bit. Like so many people hold themselves back from 
even taking a step uh, because they, of what they think in their head is, is going to be a huge risk yeah. when almost always it's, it's really not as bad as it, it seems. Yeah, I think anybody that's looking at a possible career change always thinks of it in terms of compensation for what they're currently doing and then like, oh, how do I jump into something new and make the same compensation? And the, the answer is usually it'll be tough to find if you're not doing anything. But like my own situation with Phoenix, I started just volunteering for free because I liked the mission. I didn't care about like compensation or anything like that. And once you get started doing something that you enjoy doing, regardless of what you're doing, if you can do that while you're still doing your previous career, that's great, go for it. Because then that kind of gets you in the act. Yeah. And then once you're in the act and, and kind of building up um, experience doing that, then it's easier to make that transition. Yeah. If you go from just doing one thing all the time to doing the next thing, it's a little bit tougher, but if you kind of take small incremental steps to get there, it makes it way easier. Yep, for sure. So looking back at your journey, is there anything that you would have I don't know, uh, do different is, is, is not really the intention, but um, is there something along the way that you could have realized sooner in terms of what you were looking for or what you, what you wanted to do? Um, I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Because like all, all missteps lead to a little bit of wisdom and that ends up kind of informing your decisions later on in life. And at the same time, if I had, again, me telling me what to do, I wouldn't really be getting that wisdom. I'd just be kind of like blindly listening to some future version of myself. But I think uh, I really wish I, I didn't have so much fear about change early on. Um, and at the same time, who knows? Maybe all that stored up fear about making a change over the years is what made me eventually take this leap now. Uh, but yeah, I, I really. I mean, this is gonna be kind of a stretch, right? But like the COVID thing, right? Uh, how it impacts local affiliate owners. Um, it's a, it, well, it's a tough time for a lot of businesses in general, but at the same time, you know, you take away the in-person offering that a lot of affiliate owners have, and there's a ton of fear around that. What can you do? You can't control the circumstances, so you end up leading into virtual classes, uh, equipment loan out, programming at-home workouts for people a little bit. Uh, if people operate from a position of fear, fear, fear is invisible. Fear isn't actually anything. It's just, um, it, it's, it's a construct and it's preventing us from doing a lot of things that, or just not even like wholesale change, but just small incremental things that we can try and do differently. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I guess that's the only thing that I wish I had known prior, but then again, yeah. time is wisdom. Like yep. you know, I, I, I probably, wouldn't have known that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan of reading books and, and whatnot. So are there books in your life that um, stand out to you as either um, ones that you would recommend to really anybody out there to read or ones that for you uh, made a big impact uh, on you? Uh, gosh. <laughs> um, so when I was a kid, I was, I was very big into Michael Crichton stuff. Like oh, yeah. I used to read Jurassic Park, Congo, yeah, like all same, this stuff. Same. Um, but one of his, uh, his lesser known books that I feel like nobody ever reads is uh, Travels, which is his autobiography. Oh, right. And it talks all about, um, it, it's essentially kind of just like 
uh, it follows along with his story about traveling around the world and things that he learned from different cultures, different people, uh, different times in his life. But the most informative part of that book is, spoiler alert for anybody that wants to read it, but um, the first like two chapters where he talks about coming from a family that was very entrenched in uh, success and what it looked like and him going to medical school and becoming a doctor and then like just at the last portion of following through with um, his medical degree he decides I don't want to do this and then he moves across the country gets a, a tiny apartment in uh, Los Angeles and he starts writing hmm. and I no idea. yeah, yeah it, and <laughs> it's kind of funny because he tells stories about how like he was known as like the doctor in the apartment complex, so people would call him up and knock on his door if like someone down the hall had something happen to him. But uh, yeah, he uh, he took a big leap of faith, and um, I don't know that part of the story always stuck out to me. And then there's other uh, there's other people that talk about their own recovery journey as well too, in a lot of stories. And I'm totally blanking on a lot of them now. But for those that are very interested in in reading and and uh, hearing a lot more about our org and our history. Our founder, Scott, is actually in the, the middle of putting together his own story right now. So oh, cool. uh, I don't know nice. when that's coming out, but yeah. um, at some point. Strode, S-T-R-O-D-E. That's right? correct, yeah. yeah. Got it. Um, and then a question that I like to ask everybody is um, what, what's on your bucket list? Like what's, what's on a, a, your list of things that you definitely want to do or try uh, before you kick the bucket? Uh, I mean, there's kind of like two selfish things that I always wanted to do. Uh, <laughs> I've been chatting my wife's ear off long about this, but I want to go to Norway. For whatever reason, Norway's been on my bucket list for a really long time. For sure. Yeah, I want to see that. Yeah. And uh, fjords. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. For whatever reason, like Norway's just like in the forefront of my mind. I've done a lot of travel over the years, but that's just like one area of the world I've never been to. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I always wanted to see the Iditarod, the yeah. dog race in Alaska. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, uh, like, I'm, we, we talked a little bit about uh, kids before this started. And um, my daughter's two now. And it's kind of funny, like, Every, every big plan I've ever really had for myself, I could always like, um, it was always kind of like a concrete or uh, a contextual thing. Um, I, I guess I really want to try and impart as much as I know and, and try and help her and her life journey a little bit. Um, I don't really have a very succinct way of putting it together, but I think once you become a parent, it kind of changes your perspective in terms of uh, service because uh, being a parent is kind of like operating from a position of service you're always kind of deprioritizing your own wants and needs and, mm -hmm. and putting your child's first so mm -hmm. uh, I don't really have a, a set idea of what that looks like long term but I want to always try to be cognizant of it depending on the decisions I end up making in my life yeah I love that and we uh, we were talking about it prior but uh, you had a, a little bit of a scare kind of through CrossFit, but because of that, you ended up finding out something health-wise. Uh, so you wanna, you wanna go through that? Sure, yeah. Um, so this was, uh, I guess, three years ago. 
CrossFit Fairmount was having just like an in-house competition, just like, you know, throw a couple wads together on a Saturday, everybody partner up and see how they do. And uh, there was rope climbs in one of the events. And I, I have this, uh, this sleeve that I always wear on my leg uh, to help with uh, rope burn. But for whatever reason, it wasn't in my gym bag that day. I couldn't find it. So I had to do the uh, rope climbs with just ankle socks, which basically you know you're going to get like kind of a rope burn around your ankle. Oh, yeah. Um, so a couple days go past and I end up getting kind of a bump right on my hip. And, uh, I talked to a couple friends of mine in the medical community and they're like, yeah, it looks like an inflamed lymph node. It can happen sometimes when, uh, there's an abrasion or anything on one of the appendages. If it gets infected, the lymph nodes get inflamed because they're trying to fight off infection. And I'm trying, I'm probably butchering the medical side of this a little bit, but that's kind of like the cliff notes version that, uh, it probably happened because of the rope climb. Mm -hmm. It's probably no big deal. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a friend of mine said like, well, maybe you have a hernia. And then I was like, oh God, I hope this is not a hernia. He's like, well, you know, you should probably go get checked out. Maybe get like an ultrasound or something like that. Uh, so I end up going just to get a scan, just to get it checked out. And then uh, they kind of scan like the whole area of the abdomen. And then uh, the radiologist comes in and she says, uh, there's a mass in your testicle and you have to go see a urologist tomorrow. And just straight up like that, just out of nowhere. Yeah. And <laughs> oh I'm like, God. I don't know what to think because right. it's another one of those things like the conversation I had when I was 20 about, uh, probably having a problem with alcohol. It's like, no, I'm too young. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At this yep. point I was kind of like at my peak health. Like I was, I was eating well, I was exercising all the time. Uh, I kind of thought I was in like the best shape of my life. And then all yep. of a sudden this happens. I'm kind of like, no, there's somebody else in another room that you should be giving this news to. I'm not the person mm -hmm. that should be getting this news. And then I went to go see a urologist and it turned out I had testicular cancer. And uh, I didn't, I mean, I just broke down crying. I didn't, I didn't really know like what that meant. You know, uh, I had to have uh, surgery that week to, um, they had to have an orchiectomy, which is, uh, they remove one of the testicles. And, uh, I found out afterwards, you know, I kind of thought when they posed the idea of surgery to me that, um, it was going to be like, all right, well, maybe I get to keep it. Uh, but no, like they had to, they had to remove the whole thing. It was basically just an entire tumor. And the thing that they needed to do afterwards is they needed to do a CAT scan to see where else in my body it could go. Because anybody that's familiar with TC, it's, um, it's very common. It's the most common form of cancer in men ages 25 to 35, I believe, with an average diagnosis right around age 33. But the thing is, is that mortality rates are very low because it's a very slow moving cancer. So if it's detected very early, there's a lot of things that they can do. Okay. Um, but as it expands, it can travel to other parts of the aortic cavity. So you can hear people that have like TC and then it shows up in their lungs or their, you know, wherever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got very lucky in the fact that we managed to catch it early and uh, I'm now three years cancer free. Uh, I still do scans regularly just to see if it comes back. But uh, yeah, a, a rope burn got me to go get checked out. And now I try to tell as many men that I know about it because there's just not a lot of awareness around it. I right. think right. Um, mortality rates would be even lower if there was just enough 
uh, information out there for young men to talk to their doctors about. And I don't like to preach too much about this a little bit, but I think, especially as men, we're kind of like break fix in terms of our approach to health and seeking a doctor. Like if I break an arm, I'm gonna go seek a doctor to get it fixed, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go to the doctor when I feel well, because why? And then this kind of changed my perspective of, you know, you have to kind of take an active participation in your health. And that goes for men and women, you know? Uh, have a relationship with a primary care doctor. Go to get checked up regularly. Um, maybe this would have shown up sooner if I was regularly going to the doctor, but um, yeah, I kind of try to impart that knowledge a little bit because I think at a certain point, everybody thinks they're bulletproof a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then something like that uh, made me feel very human. And this is what the Movember project was kind of founded for or yeah. to support, right? Yeah, we, uh, we ended up doing a, a fundraiser to help those guys out. Uh, a bunch of people, again, uh, Goose at CrossFit Fairmount hosted uh, Murph for Men's Health Awareness. Mm -hmm. We raised a bunch of money for uh, testicular cancer research, mm -hmm. uh, which was great. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's still something that's very near and dear to me, so. Cool. Yeah. Some crazy life experiences. Yeah, you know, I'm, I, I'm trying to keep things normal for at least a year or two, but. Uh, you know. <laughs> Throw a pandemic in there and. Yeah, yeah. And then even the pandemic okay. happened. My wife and I both changed careers. We, we bought and sold a house. We moved out to the suburbs. So like every single year, it's like something, something else is coming along. But um, yeah. while raising a toddler. Yeah, while raising a toddler. So yeah. at some point I'll have like a relaxing year, but um, yeah. I don't know if 2021 is gonna be it either. Is there anything coming up in 2021 or, or in the future that you, you have set uh, in terms of like something you're looking forward to or um, are we just kind of like main, trying to maintain as, as even keel as possible right now and just kind of letting things open back up as, as they do? Uh, so there are two things from kind of a, a professional perspective mm -hmm. our organization are doing this year. So uh, with everything that kind of went on last year, uh, with COVID, there was also everything that went on last year with CrossFit, the brand, and, mm -hmm. and it's kind of been well documented, everything that was said, yep. uh, and then the exchange of ownership, and um, the uh, leadership at CrossFit now, Eric specifically, has been um, talking to us about uh, serving individuals um, who currently don't have access to CrossFit programming with uh, a specific skew towards uh, DEI issues. And for anybody that doesn't know, that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we came to him with an idea of uh, this concept of a CrossFit community center. And essentially what that would be is uh, a building that Phoenix would own and we would run our Phoenix programs out of, but we would also open the doors to that building to other CrossFit-based nonprofits that are kind of like-minded in mission, but not necessarily the individuals that we serve. So um, we're kind of in the early stages of building that out, but uh, right now it's looking like Boston. Uh, our location in Boston is gonna kind of be like the pilot site for that. Yeah. And we're also working on procuring space out in Detroit. So. 
we're in early negotiations with a lot of other nonprofits to see like what they're able to do, if they're able to stand up programs in both of those sites and invite them into the space. Uh, so if anybody knows of any nonprofits that kind of um, align with that goal, uh, if they use CrossFit as their uh, method, that's great. You know, if they skew more towards like any other kind of movement uh, methodology, we're open to that as well too. But yeah, we're, we're looking for um, partners in kind of creating this community center atmosphere. And then uh, at the same time, we're still trying to grow programs in Philly. Uh, we still have a relationship with Fearless. Uh, they let us run classes three times a week. Um, but we're also keen to somewhere down the road, uh, possibly procuring a physical building within Philadelphia. And uh, I think it would take uh, a commitment from uh, an angel investor that would be very uh, aligned with the success of us coming to Philadelphia, but that's still a goal. I think um, Philly is one of those cities that's been hit really hard by the drug epidemic uh, prior to COVID, and it hasn't gotten any better during COVID. So um, there's still a huge need in this area, and uh, we'd love to be able to to serve Philly and you know also the surrounding communities just outside the city as well too. Cool. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely share all of this so that hopefully someone seeing this maybe has a connection to someone, you know, so that we can um, figure it out. Obviously, Philly is a, uh, I don't know about the epicenter, but there's a lot, there's a lot of problems going on. So, um, so how can people learn more about the Phoenix, about you? Um, where, where can people go if they're watching this and they're like, I want to learn more? Sure. Uh, if they're interested in learning about classes, uh, donating, uh, our history, it's all on our website at thephoenix.org. And if you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me. Um, my email address is gyoung at thephoenix.org. Cool. Awesome. Um, thanks for coming in and, and uh, talking about it. I feel like this is something that the more we can create awareness, the, the better off, um, even f just from a fact of people being able to empathize with um, kind of a, uh, a population that may be somewhat in the shadows, but I feel like really needs some light shined upon. So. Yeah, this is a great opportunity. Thanks for having me, and, yeah. and thanks for giving me the chance to talk about this. Of course. Please listen carefully.